week. It's not even a week, is it really? It's like, when did this all break? Yesterday. Yesterday. Wednesday <laughs> night. It was Wednesday night. Because that's it? when I was walking back from the cinema. Okay. Yeah. I went and watched... Barely, barely two days then. Yeah. Barely. I went and watched Poor Things and then like opened my phone after not having been on Twitter for two hours. And it was like, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> yeah. Two, only two hours away from Twitter and half of the world came crashing I know. down. It's absolutely true. Uh, we are, of course, talking about the very important topic of online music journalism. <laughs> we decided to mobilize pretty quickly on this because some things have happened all at the same time that we, I guess, maybe perhaps feared might happen for a, a while and yeah. had been kind of... Feared some more than others. Yeah. And so one of those things that um, most of Twitter is talking about is the fact that Pitchfork is being folded into GQ magazine. Yeah. Established um, music outlet, GQ. Yeah. You know what? GQ has some really good music no, it, writing. No, it does. No, honestly. <laughs> like, it's getting slightly lost in this discussion, but... The, the interview section of GQ is great. Really good. Really good music and film stuff, especially. Um, yeah. But I don't think that's the point here. N no. Um, supposedly, this move is about cornering this uh, market of millennial males that uh, Condé Nast were apparently after when they first took Pitchfork uh, into their fold in 2015. Anyway, loads of people at Pitchfork have lost their jobs. I think maybe like about half of them by the sounds I wouldn't of it, maybe be even surprised more. if it was more, actually. Yeah, it like, like it's a, a pretty staggering amount of people. Yeah. And including people that have worked there for almost 20 years. Yes. Or the best part of 20 years, certainly. And we will, I think, talk about all of that maybe in more depth. Uh, at a later date, it's a little bit fresh and raw and we're quite far away from it. Um, I I occasionally contribute, but I, I'm not kind of deep in there enough to, to really comment yet. I will point out though, before we move on to the main topic of this episode, that uh, Claire Willett, who is the Global Executive Director of Analytics at Condé Nast, tweeted yesterday, uh, she said, by volume, Pitchfork has the highest daily site visitors of any of our titles. Their higher consuming segments, which I assume means audience segments like people, generate more unique page views by volume than any title. This despite scant resourcing, especially from corporate, well-placed in a post-scale era or was, which I just think is worth pointing out that Pitchfork was not a failing website. Mm. It was one of Condé Nast's most successful websites. So there's something else going on. And let's face it, it's like an internal strategic reason. Um, loads of the people who have been laid off were in the Pitchfork Union. Last in, uh, in 2020, Condé Nast laid off the union leader, Stacey Anderson. A lot of the people, yeah, a lot of the people who've gone were, were like key members of the union. And I think that seems like a pretty neat way for Condé Nast to do some union busting without having to engage in yeah, any real way. Yeah, and potential depressing echoes of what's happened at Bandcamp. Almost exactly, well. yeah. yeah. Bandcamp Union got recognised about six months before Epic sold them on to Song Trader, and now I guess that's yeah, that's then they can't get themselves recognised again in the same way. They're losing their jobs. I think some of the people who lost their jobs at Bandcamp were again uh, some of the main union organisers, right? Yeah. So we're seeing we're seeing union busting. Um, it's interesting because it's not the only union at Condé. There's there's a Wired union. There's a New Yorker union. But I'd kind of feel like there's a sense of um, like a warning shot as well. Mm. Like, don't bother unionizing because we will just fold you into GQ. Hey, we've got a guest. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Henry. Um, up until very recently, I worked for Fact Magazine. How recently? Uh, about half an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> we've brought in Henry for uh what looks like it could be a, a bit of an autopsy of Fact Magazine, our sort of alma mater in many ways, you yeah. know. Um, Tom and I, as as we've mentioned on the show before, but we worked together at Fact coming on 10 years ago. God, it's 10 years. I know. Yeah, 10 years ago. That was when Tom was the editor and I was uh, just a little news editor for a bit and then I was commissioning editor. Yeah, I feel like those titles are always a little bit amorphous though. Sort of, but I did do loads of fucking news. So did I, I mate. Did, yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> I've also done loads of fucking yeah. news. <laughs> Everyone um, had to break their back on that. Um, it, was, it was a big era. How many a day were you on the doing? Content farm. That's what's the most you did in one day. Maybe about nine. I did, tw I did 12 <gasps> on As an individual. 12? God, I did that's 12 brutal. Yeah, it was tough. That's rough. Tough Damn. Day. Yeah. I was, I didn't, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. Sometimes the thrill though of like a 10 minute churned repost first yeah. is... 
you know. It's an espresso, isn't it? It's a, it's a <laughs> I don't even know how many of mine were firsties, to be honest. Um, fewer and fewer these days. Yeah, though. yeah. It's, it's I found not... it very nerve-wracking starting out writing news. Like, very, very stressful. It's, my, it's also it's my first job ever. Right. So, of any kind? Of any kind. I wanted wow. to ask you this off mic and I thought I'd save it. Yeah, what was your background going into this? Uh, <laughs> I um, So, I got the job initially when I was living in Berlin. Right. Um, I was there... I kind of sort of went there on a whim after university and I'd spent all my money on going out and, um, yeah. And I actually was about to have to go home, I think. But then my sister, this is how I remember it. I don't know if I romanticized this, but this is very much how I remember it, is that my sister added me in the comments of an Instagram post saying facts, looking for news writers in Berlin and then interviewed and then got the job there. Right. So that's how I started doing it. We buried the lead. Fact is basically closing down. That's the important nugget that we haven't really broken, yeah. broken down well, yet. Well, in, or, in, or is it? What or is, is it? What, what's happening? So what's, I, I don't think fa- I don't think fact's closing down. So they're scaling back the website. Right. What does that mean? That means, as far as I know, that all the kind of series and uh, things that we've been doing up until today are like on hold mm-hmm. um, for the foreseeable future. I think the website's still going to exist, but as I understand it, it will reflect what's happening in the print magazine. This is what I've been taught anyway. So is it fair to say if it's not dead, this is the last, I don't want to, nail in the coffin sounds a little bit spiky, but I can't think of a better phrase, but is this the last part of like old fact? Yeah. Being, I, you I, know, that's the I think as I, understand, as I understand it, that's true. So the print magazine's going to happen. Uh, that's going to carry on and I'm still going to contribute to that on a freelance basis. Um, but I think the sort of like more... I guess reactive, consistent stuff on the website is that's that's kind of finished. Yeah, as I understand. So it. this is kind of the end of old facts. Certainly, certainly the fact is you guys knew it, and then I knew it at the end. Yeah. What is the print mag at this point then? The print magazine. It's sort of. I think it was they wanted to relaunch it because they wanted to have a, a space to do like more long form things. But they also wanted to have something that sort of bridged the gap between what fact was doing and then what fact was doing sort of physically at 180 the strand so we've like curate co-curated like various sh- shows there uh so i think the magazine was sort of like a physical um yeah like object reflecting this uh but then also were you involved in any of that curation at all uh to a certain extent not really i mean i there was artists that I'd work with for the website that would then like feed up right, yeah. into the magazine and then feed up into into the group show. So that happened a few times. Um, so a little bit of, of curation there for sure. So I think what we want to try and get at in this conversation is what went wrong or, or what is going wrong for all of these websites? What keeps going wrong for, for music journalism in general? Like why is it so hard to run a small website with some varied coverage of kind of niche musical interests for a global English-speaking audience of music fans. Um, and we obviously this is like a crucial topic for the entire No Tags project is this yeah. question. But this time we're kind of just simply pouring one out for fact, for sure. thinking about how that how that worked. And the whole project, the magazine's changed a lot, you know, in the time since since we worked there. Um, but obviously this feels like quite a, a line in the sand moment. Tom, why don't you give us the sort of bigger overview of what fact is? Because it's kind of a, a node in a bigger ecosystem of music stuff, isn't it? So yeah, maybe this point actually, because I'm aware we've we've used a couple of potentially niche terms already. It's probably worth outlining. <laughs> deep fact law. Yeah, deep fact law, exactly. <laughs> it is probably worth outlining what fact is and, and where it sits in regards to like the larger vinyl factory um, machine. So the vinyl factory is a UK-based, I guess vaguely a music company. Its portfolio includes Fact. It includes Fonica Records, which is a record store in Soho. Um, it encompasses a vinyl pressing plant, which still exists, Henry? I yeah, think. I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Out in Hayes. The vinyl factory. Yeah, the original actual vinyl factory. Um, they have an in-house record label. Um, but then maybe most crucially to this discussion we're having, they also own 180 The Strand and Brewer Street Car Park, which are two, well, in the case of 180 The Strand, it's absolutely massive, two significant kind of visual arts venues in London. Um, but 180, you'd probably know more than me, Henry, at this point, but it encompasses a lot more than that. I think I'm right saying Days to have their office there. Yeah, TikTok a... have an office there. Virgil Abloh used to have an office there. Yeah, I think that's still there. Is it called right. Alaska, Alaska, the sort of like research sure. part of the, the brand? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, 
And I think it's also worth noting for context, because I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about backing and finances when it comes to these magazines. Um, Mark Water and Tim Robinson, who own the Vinyl Factory, also have a significant central London property portfolio. And this is, I guess, the way of saying that like fact kind of always was, and I don't actually say this in a, in a, in a nasty way at all, but fact was always essentially a vanity project for them to have a cool magazine that sits alongside the other music related stuff they do. And that vanity project eventually kind of spiraled and built into something that ended up have you know, maybe having like an outweighed influence on music at large. And that was kind of the point where they decided to take it a bit more seriously, invest a bit more money into it. We're talking about 20, 2010 to 2012 here, roughly, um, when the team, you know, well, the whole thing just scaled up a lot in that period, particularly. What was it before that point then? So Fact launched in 2003. It was a print magazine, um, literally run out of Fonica's basement. Um, and I'm pretty sure, I mean, there were freelancers, but the team was, I'm pretty sure, just Sean Bitter and Anthony Hill. Sean Bitter, to, Bitter was editor and who still works at Vinyl Factory. He's and, editor now. Oh God, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sean, Sean has now gone Sean full now circle Sean, and he's back as Fact editor. Yeah. That's a very good point. And Hill is like low-key Vinyl Factory legend, has basically been there since the dawn of time um, doing various... And legend in general. Yeah, legend in general. We all love Ant. Um, Ant was commercial director at Fact, was the guy selling the ads and actually the only person bringing money in for a long time um, and now has like a, a wider role at Vinyl Factory. But yeah, Fact was a pretty humble bi-monthly print magazine in 2003 and it didn't really shift its focus fully to digital until 2008. At which point, Kieran Sunday had joined the year before. I joined in summer 2008. And I guess, and I mean, no disrespect to Sean around here, but it was when me and Kieran really came on board that we started really focusing on the website. The website until then was kind of just a home to dump stuff that had already been in the print magazine, which sounds like potentially is coming full circle again. Yeah. But yeah, that was when there was a real focus on the website. The website started growing like really rapidly in terms of traffic, influence, whatever. That was when the mix series started and at the end of 2008, they made the probably quite savvy um, call to can the print magazine and go online only. Did you start the mix series? No, I kind of. They had run, I think, two mixes already. I think there was a Count and Cinder one and a DFA one, but it wasn't a mix series. It was just like <laughs> they've done a mix for fact. Yeah. I turned it into a series, but I can't take credit for like starting the mix series. Okay. Well, sounds like you can or can. Depends how, I don't know, <laughs> depends how humble I want to be. Something I'd want to add about the era as well is that it was completely normal for a music magazine to not have a website that had anything on it or anything more than the print uh, yes. than the print thing had. You know, it, these are still the days of like buying the hard copy of Time Out for £3.50 and it's like hundreds of pages of, or two, you know, 100 pages of listings or whatever. And in a sense, I think Fact Road a wave just as plenty of other people did, including with starting the mix series, which also mm. was what lots of people were doing at that time, like the RA podcast starting because everybody had an iPod and that was yes. how people were, were listening to stuff. So this is all like- I feel like RA were kind of the trailblazers there. Yeah, I, I think, think so. I think the very quickly like Fact, RA and Accelerator became like the main three yeah. in terms of- Did RA start first? Yeah, yeah. RA was the first significant one in that field, I mm. think. It's also worth noting that like, I mean, I say there was a focus on the website and obviously there was like a news section, but like this is so pre like rolling news as an online concept. Exactly, I mean, exactly. it was probably like four news stories a day and it was only in office hours. It's funny. I think the one time, the first time we ever posted a news story after office hours was, I think it was the whole like burial being unmasked by the sun stuff. <laughs> and I think Kieran was just like, this has gone so wild so quickly that we just need to cover it and just mm. like locked on at like 10 p.m. or whatever. But until then, like news went from, I don't know, like 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And if whatever, an Animal Collective album was announced at seven, you just wait until the next morning, which seems so alien now. But that's another story for another day. Mm. What was the music specialism then? I don't think there was. I Facts like music taste or like the breadth of music they covered was always very broad. And it maybe narrowed a bit when 
you know, Sean kind of was still editor, but he stepped back from stuff because he was doing so much other Vinyl Factory stuff and being brought into like wider Vinyl Factory projects and a lot of live stuff. So me and Kieran were kind of the inmates running the asylum for like a couple of years. And I guess we were just like a bit younger, like in the club every weekend. I was more going to like dubstep slash dubstep adjacent stuff. Kieran was going to a lot of techno nights. But like we just started covering that stuff because it's what we were interested in. And no one was really telling us otherwise. There wasn't like, there was never a strategy at that point. There probably was originally. But when me and Kieran were like posting 90% of the content on the website, like there was never a strategy beyond covering cool stuff we liked. And I think that's what it's been like for me, honestly. Cool. Yeah. I mean, it seems that way, right? Like your taste really like shines through, especially with like the mix series and stuff like that. Like you can tell what you're into. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. It's it's been really nice to have the, like the space to take risks on that kind of stuff. And I, yeah, it's been a point of pride and also something I'm really driven to do to try and make when I've been as when I've been in control of it, trying to make the mixes very, very different to as yeah. many other mix series as I can. Yeah. And I think the mix series is arguably, look, I don't think any mix series can have the impact that those mix series had then just because of the course. media, the whole thing is so much more saturated now. But like, I think the mix series, like in terms of having an identity is like arguably the strongest it's ever been. Well, until, until you clocked off Thank 45 you so minutes much ago. for saying that. Um, but no, I think, it's, I think it's genuinely true. But um, yeah, I guess to go back to the point, there wasn't a strategy, but I think... The kind of music we were covering timed itself really nicely with like, particularly in the UK, like dance music just having like a massive boom and people that we covered when they were very niche, like a James Blake or a Ben UFO or whatever, suddenly becoming these like global superstars. And I think like, as their names got bigger, they were the people we were covering heavily, but they were also the people we'd built like very early grassroots relationships with. Like that helped fact scale up a lot and I think maybe gave it like a leg up on an RA in in that kind of music as well Mm. burial interview burial interview yeah (laughs) yeah that's a trip (laughs) no everyone can say that yeah Um, wait till the XL press cycle I think it's also worth noting about this era as well like when I talk about you know RA facts and accelerator having like kind of the big free mix series it's also worth remembering that that era like DJ mag and mix mag which are like obviously very prominent online platforms now covering comparable music to fact like they weren't really in the trenches then like they were very much still print focused and covering like ibiza super club like that side of dance music and even in pitchfork beyond like martin clark and philip sherban's columns there wasn't a lot of niche electronic music discourse on pitchfork like certainly not to the degree there is now so i think like as that music got bigger i mean there were others there were blogs there was stuff like minimal sausages then but like as far as things that felt a little bit more like organized magazines with teams behind them, like I might be forgetting someone, but RA, Fact and Accelerator kind of felt like the only three for a long time. All right. So when did you become editor? Uh, I became editor in, I like the way this has descended into you interviewing your former <laughs> just, colleagues. and yeah, Just trying to keep us on tracks. <laughs> um, I became editor at the very start of 2012. I actually can't remember if it was the very start of 2012 or the very end of 2011, but yeah. Came editor then, and that kind of timed itself. I think that was a period where, let's say, especially between 2009 and 2011, like factors started to grow rapidly. And the higher ups at the vinyl factory had noticed that. I think they started having people talk to them about factor exhibitions or the Biennale or whatever, and conversations that just didn't happen before. And I think it twigged a little bit. It's like, oh, this thing that was kind of a vanity project being run at the basement actually has this like really global influence. Honestly, before then, like our budgets, well, one, our wages were dreadful, but two, like the budgets for freelancers were like non-existent. Like the amount of the amount of stuff people were writing for free is like pretty horrifying in retrospect. Um, but that was the period where they were like, okay, we want to take this thing seriously. We're moving you out the basement. Like you get not quite your own office, but you get a half of the vinyl factory office that you can use. And there was almost like a chart style reward system where it was like, well, if you can hit certain traffic targets, we will provide more budget for staff hires and freelancers, which in a way was great. In another way, in retrospect, traffic becoming that big a part of the conversation was dangerous. Sounds mad stressful to me. It is stressful. And 
look, it's kind of obvious, right? We're going to end up talking about like thirsty culture and journalism stuff. And, you know, that doesn't all have to be evil. I'll forever ride out for some of like facts, better listicles. Um, Love them. Yeah. Came up on them. I don't think yeah. we should confuse journalism and thirsties with listicles. No, we shouldn't. <laughs> You're listicles, right. good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This goes um, in 2024. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Back in. Yeah, just get Joe Muggs doing his top 25 trance records. Put your trance there. trousers on. It, oh, fantastic. <laughs> but you know, like, I live I, for that stuff. the minute traffic is that big a focal point of the conversation, it comes with its own dangers. And like, I like to think in that period, and you know, a, a massive part of that was like being lucky enough to bring really good people in, such as yourself. But like, we hit all those targets and that was great because it meant we could expand and then we had the TV team and we got to expand and have a US office, which I think was pretty massive in terms of like that's global recognition. But the minute, yeah, traffic is the center of your universe, it comes with its own issues. And I think in the years to follow, we saw some, um, yeah, some results of that that maybe like haven't aged too well. Like what? Yeah, what kind of result? <laughs> just just like, I don't know, just some like pretty shitty news stories that were banged out. Sure. Yeah. With like no real value beyond just like getting on stuff first and knowing that if we were the first on X news story, yeah. it, would lead to, it would lead to clicks, yeah. right? And this was also like the culture of music me- media then. Mm. Like mm. the whole, and this is before we get into the pivot to video age, but like every, like your, your, your monthly traffics, your monthly uniques were like what you were based on. And that wasn't just the case with fact. That was the case across the board. And it's like the whole system was you build your you build your traffic numbers, you sell that to advertisers, people advertise, money comes in. Mm. Rinse and repeat. Like that was that was the system that like 99% of music websites were built on. And it turned out to be an unsustainable one. One of the criticisms that generic criticisms of Pitchfork that bubbles up a lot is like, well, you turned into a Taylor Swift news site. Um, and I think, I do think there's an element of that that can be a bit of a fair critique for Mm. Pitchfork because you can see why, you can see why they've said, look, this will do some numbers that will tick that box for a bit. And then you can kind of apply those added numbers to be able to do something cool in the other corner of the website or something fine. I don't feel like there was much that we covered that we were like doing just out of habit, but I did. There were there were some natural fact big hitters that you couldn't ignore. Like you had to always do like MF Doom, Aphex, Flying Lotus, Flying Lotus massive, was a big one, massive. Tom York probably yeah. Fortet, Fortet, Radiohead, Jamie XX, James Blake. I don't know about it. It wasn't Jamie XX. I feel like Jamie XX was a big hitter. Not not on the level of an MF Doom though. I mean, Aphex was the big one. Aphex was the big anything one. on Aphex. Yeah, Henry, yeah. do you remember the the Aphex April Fools? Uh, which one? This is actually the probably the best post on factmag.com yeah. ever. Avril first. Avril first. <laughs> and I think we can say this now, like full credit to John Twelves. Shout who out Twelves. Both came up with Shout the out. idea, but John. also made the track. And it was absolutely just, you couldn't have, no one could have said that that wasn't a track by FX Twin called Avril first. And yeah. Went you up. Can, by the way, <laughs> like there are still Reddit threads and like We Are The Music Makers threads to this day with people arguing about whether that track is actually <laughs> by FX Twin. And it was John who knocked it out in like an hour. Wow, it's that was good. That was good. I think the story was that someone had, someone working in like Barcelona airport, right, had like come across Apex's mini disc player <laughs> in the lost property. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was the story. What were your other uh, content highlights from the that era? Oh God, I don't know. Um, when we did the decade albums lists, that felt really like that was such a education i think probably for all of us in different mm, ways where yeah. we were kind of compiling like alternative best of the 70s best of the 80s best of the 90s and it just really sharpened my mind to oh, what was 100%. really out there and i i really felt i almost felt quite angry about like the received canon being so fucking shit and limited when it's like there's just so so much weirder more interesting music out there and yeah we, i felt like it was such an amazing snapshot of our like respective broad broad taste and like mm. that, like especially yeah, because so... there was a really wide age range in the office at that point that was when joe muggs was there like yeah. three days a week as well and it's funny like we'll probably get into the z era but um that was all z's suggestion and actually I think sometimes 
when your tastes are like naturally niche and when you've been in like the music media machine for a long time, like the idea of suddenly just doing facts, best albums of the 90s seems weirdly alien and like basic. But sometimes you need someone to suggest these big pitch ideas. It's like, well, actually, because I had the same thing. Like I was like, this is a really cool opportunity for us to like recanonize stuff a little bit or at the very least create our own alternative canon because a lot of those lists are just so boring and yeah i learned a ton from them yeah been so instructive for me those lists are my canon i think the like yeah. fact i found them so instructive to the way that i listen to music and also i was reading them at a very like i'm sure i was reading page yeah very very yeah. formative age like some of them when i was a teenager so probably do you remember who we got to do guest blurbs for some of those this has only just occurred to me um, we got LP to blurb Illmatic. Oh, nice. That's wild. We got Shackleton to blurb Godflesh Street Cleaner. Mm. Uh, God, I don't remember that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were good. They were good. Um, I also thought there was a point when Joseph Morpago was Features Ed and just the sheer volume of pretty decent stuff that we put out, like usually two features a day. Yeah. And, you know, who else is doing like 700 words with Pie Corner Audio? You know. But then Joseph would also go out and interview Kendrick Lamar. Yes, and like, that's so true. Just weave the most niche Greek mythology references he could <laughs> find into a Kendrick interview. But what's missing, obviously, now is, I think is that it's just very, very difficult to pitch these like tiny marginal bits of music, and and to, and to say this deserves space. Like, obviously, The Wire is a place where you can pitch difficult or sort of underground or less covered music. But I'm not really talking about that kind of music. I'm talking about something in between that and what actually ends up in the pages of DJ Mag or Pitchfork or something. Yeah. Or even people who are just, I don't know, they've been around a bit longer and they've been doing it for ages and they're kind of interesting, but they're not necessarily going to ride a hype cycle anytime soon. Just mm. just covering stuff for the sake of having a record of it having happened and that you liked it was a little bit part of yeah. that. that. I think this this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'd like to get your thoughts. And I'm sure we'll get into a lot of big picture stuff here as well. But like, I think it's worth mentioning um, when we bring up The Wire, like I've seen The Wire brought up quite a lot on the timeline the last couple of days as like a, almost like this cautionary tale kind of thing where it's like, well, Pitchfork sold out to Condé Nast and they covered a load of Taylor Swift stuff. And look at The Wire, it's still going. And the biggest artist they ever cover is like Brian Eno or whatever. Or like, that's a bad example, but you know what I mean. Mm. And in a way, I think that's valid. And I think not just music, but like media and tech in general is full of cautionary tales of, I mean, Facebook is this to some extent, right? Platforms that expand their scope to a point where you lose track of what the original thing is and their influence and audience suffers as a result. That's tried and tested. That happens all the time. But I also think the, the wire is still standing, but I imagine they are struggling and the quietus are quite openly struggling mm. and yeah i think it's a little bit of an unhelpful binary that some people i've seen have like to create between the two because i don't think it's easy for anyone whether you're the wire or your pitchfork right like this is what this whole thing is showing or if you're somewhere in the middle and you're a fact which as we're seeing is being rolled into 180 the strand maybe yeah. to you know borrow the pitchfork gq parlance yeah potentially I think the thing, I don't know, the thing that I guess is maybe somewhat different is that certainly when I've worked there for me, I've wanted to be able to to do this thing to like, you know, have the archive of of people who I think are really do, doing really good stuff who aren't being really covered anywhere else mm. and to be able to be kind of committed to exploring things in a, a bit more of broader and like being ambitious and being exploratory. But also at the same time, like it's really important for me that loads and loads of people hear about it as well. And I think, I guess that was the cool thing about facts is that it felt it was doing both of those things at the same time, that there was the breadth of the music was also reflected in the breadth of the audience that, mm. you know, that you guys were focused on um, at that time. I think it's maybe worth noting that in that period as well, going back to the sort of 20, mid-2010s period, that even though on one hand we were doing these really big numbers and the workings of the Facebook algorithm at that time were doing good things for us. Twitter was working for us. This yeah. was kind of before 
Instagram was that much part of the Instagram pie, wasn't in a sense. Really, it was yeah, still, it was yeah. still coming up. People definitely weren't consuming like news from Instagram the same way. No, and I mean, people and I did was... go back and look at the numbers. It's maybe worth noting that, like, between like 2012-2015, uh, the average traffic went from like about 200k a month to like two million plus. So we are talking like significant yeah, growth here, big numbers, and the. Facebook element of it was really massive and obviously so massive that when, of course, Facebook tweaked its algorithm, that, you know, had a big impact yeah. as, as it has with everybody. When Facebook uh, announced that everyone needed to pivot to video and people did that and people's jobs were lost, and we, we already had sort of pivoted to video, so that was fine. But well, that- ironically, fact had, but then like, I feel like the real fact pivot to video happened sort of after a lot of that stuff and I think this probably is too long a subject to go fully into here, but add some show notes. I mean, the whole pivot to video thing is based on lies by Facebook. It's, yeah, right. It's based on inflated metrics. And it did feel weird from an outsider perspective. And this might have been slightly before your tenure there, Henry. I'm not sure. But fact kind of did this weird move where it was like, we are fully pivoting to video about a year after a lot of media companies were like, well, we shouldn't have pivoted to video. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. True, no, yeah. I think that was when I was there. I mean, right. for me... Their real, like, the real video pivot for them came, for fact, came at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. Which Yes, is, I remember. Yeah. I remember having this Maybe conversation. Maybe that's a bit after for w- w- what you're actually saying. But I, I actually remember meeting Scott, like, a month before the pandemic happened. And he told me, he was like, we are going full video. Yeah. He was another colleague of ours yes. on the team. Scott Wilson. Scott Wilson. Ex-Juno Plus editor and then moved to fact in 2013, 2014. Yes. Who's, I guess, the last of... Yeah, the last, last, the the last of us now. Yeah, yeah. the last of us. <laughs> the last of us. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was very strange that I guess I found that strange too that there was this like decision to pivot fully. Yeah, years after basically it had come out that it was all based on lies and that it was like fudge numbers basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was like a there was a reason for it, which is that it was supposed to reflect the like 180 studios and 180 the strands. Uh, like exhibitions and shows they're putting mm. out at the time and they kind of wanted it to be a space where uh the music focus would sort of be joined by this focus on like audiovisual and digital art um which yeah it was funny my job kind of changed overnight i was writing news and you know working with with john twiles and claire Lovenfeld, um amazing editors mm. and then it changed overnight and suddenly i was like in charge of running a sort of video series which is not something i had any experience doing um trying to find interesting music videos but also audiovisual art and digital art to show on an online context which was i mean it was a weird space when i started it's still a weird space i kind of think i had to basically construct it from scratch um it for me as like a a, a music writer or someone who writes about music and art it was kind of weird because my my job was to upload videos to youtube like and on a granular level, that's what I was doing. But also I saw it as a bit of a challenge where I was like, well, this the video pivot stuff has, has been proven to be like false and fake. I'm just going to continue trying to develop a writing practice around it. So there was this like kind of deranged period of time where I was like writing consistently like 800 to 1,000 words, just like accompanying like a, like a cool music video or a weird bit of art that I'd found. Um, and yeah, that was just kind of what fact offered for like a, about a year, I would say. So actually I was writing way more during that period of time than right, I was writing yeah. like news and contributing to, to the lists and which I, which I love doing, but I, it was, uh, it was weird because it was, it didn't really affect my output as a writer and as a journalist. In fact, I think it allowed me to write more about art and music and to, to develop a voice in that way until I got, uh, nerfed i like my boy account got cut to 300 words which is probably advisable it was like a right. good thing that, that happened um i shouldn't be allowed to write like 1500 words on like a piece of art. like no one's no i don't know i think you it. should <laughs> what, what, what is the internet for if not like yeah scrapping yeah. word counts and letting people go long yeah <laughs> have Ag- you read no tags agreed yes i think i think everyone should be allowed to go long personally as well yeah I just wanted to add as well that in this era, going back to this 2015 era, I think it would be wrong to assume that because numbers were flying and people were being hired and fact was ostensibly sort of doing well, that music journalism itself was in a good place. Actually, 
for my entire career, music journalism has always been on some sort of precipice. And mm. at that point, the precipice was like, print mags are dying. And that was seen as a really big deal, like in the way that we've just simply forgotten that that was ever a big deal. And now the fact that Pitchfork is dying is the big deal. But it was only, you know, 10 years ago or so. I remember when NME turned into a free sheet and, you know, it just seemed, it seemed like such bad juju for the whole yeah. thing you know I, we need there to be print as well in a way that that seemed to be there was something about the print journalism still existing that felt like a good kind of like quality baseline or something but it has all been eroded gradually in the in the years since really there well, are very few mags left also like i bang on more than i should on this podcast about digital archiving but mm. stuff being cemented in print means, means it's there means it's there so after all that era I left in 2017, and by that time, so Tom, you left the year before yeah. to work on the label 2015, I left, and yeah. other things. And Al Horner took over from you. Al had come from NME. I think what the Vinyl Factory wanted from Al was a kind of NME-type capability with brand partnerships and with that type of thing like I think they saw it as a good commercial decision to bring someone in from enemy even though I don't I don't believe that Al had come from like that bit of enemy <laughs> but he'd but he'd been exposed to the kind of enemy um yes brand partnership mind some some classic uh, enemy brand partnerships from history um and he you know he 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 was a, ultimately a little bit more like populist in the direction because I think he saw that he needed to get yeah even more numbers basically. And we did a few things that were sort of popular at the time, like the cover story, the online cover story, yeah. which I don't think anyone has ever really like managed to do. It no one's really nailed it, doesn't nailed work. it have they? Um, I think to be fair to Al, I think like, I think it was an odd fit. And I'm sure he would also acknowledge that. Uh, where I do have sympathy with him as well is, I think I'm speculating a little bit, but like the last year I was there and I wanted to leave a good like six, seven, eight months before I did, the Vinyl Factory were getting a lot more involved in what was being posted, stuff they wanted to get posted, stuff they didn't want to cover. And I think when I left and Al came in, it was like they had an editor that they could shape and influence a bit more. And so I don't think that made his job particularly easy. There was also a funny thing about Mark sort of discovering Instagram and yes. just being really obsessed about us being massive. Well, on Mark Instagram. used to do this thing where he would discover, like, I don't know, he'd be again to be in RLA and like have a conversation with Jefferson Hack or whatever. And he'd just like maraud into the office and be like, Have you heard of Skepta? We should be covering Skepta. And it's like, <laughs> Yeah, we've been covering Skepta for 10 years now. And he'd be like, Good. And then he'd come in and be like, Have you heard of Virgil Abloh? We should cover Virgil Abloh. And he'd be like, Yeah, on, you know, on the maybe sort of. Um, and I think those conversations just, I think, uh, I got the impression they, you know, increased like tenfold I under Al's uh, stewardship. I think there was a disappointment as well that suddenly 180 came along and there was kind of a shiny new toy around and a lot of attention was being lavished on that. And it just felt a bit like what we were doing wasn't quite in the same spirit as, like you say, when it was sort of in the basement writing about well, who was on the early covers? Was it Lily Allen on one of the early covers? God knows. That's a bad example then. But yeah. I think it says that on Wikipedia. Oh, Not right. Okay. Yeah. But it didn't have an, the bloggy feel as much. It was kind of losing didn't its have that agility yeah. and this, yeah, just the kind of like silliness. Um, it did feel like its influence was waning in that period. Maybe. As an outsider, I don't know, that's though. the vibe I got. But then only in the sense that I think online music journalism's influence in general true, perhaps that's very has true. waned for other reasons. Like people aren't as plugged into getting that music news every day. And that's also an algorithm thing. And it's also because everybody's mm. left Facebook and people aren't necessarily just getting news in the way. Like I don't think that 23-year-olds who are really into music well, no one needs about it. music it, news yeah, no, one, no one needs it because you're just discovering new stuff like on the Spotify algorithms or you're, you know, you're in your own little communities and mm. that's being kind of shared in a more like localised, organic way, I think. So how have you thought about this then, thinking about the last few years of fact and where audiences now are and where music discovery now happens and 
How have you got your head around what your task is then? <laughs> You're making a sort of pain face. <laughs> I think it's really, I think it's become more and more like fractalized and, and complex. I think certainly with the mix series, I think there's like maybe an organic community around the mix series, um, which most of which I see as sort of, I guess, artist led. I'm mostly seeing you know, other artists and DJs who, 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 who really like it and who kind of, you know, will pass them around in their own environments and ecosystems. And I think, I guess, when I took over the mix series, I tried really hard just to, uh, basically just to do it because I wanted to put other artists on. I always like kind of focused it from a point of being like, there are all these incredible people that I'm listening to constantly. I really want to platform all of them. So I guess in terms of like my audience, maybe it's been, it's been the person in my head is like another producer, mm. another musician who like doesn't have a platform could use the platform as hearing it. And maybe it's like, but then maybe that's a bit, a bit too insular. And I've like composed these like heartfelt <laughs> tweets to go alongside the most recent fat mix to like sort of announce that it was um, ending, but I don't think anyone even read them you know like I, I think that kind of went it kind of got kind of swallowed up in the pitchfork apocalypse yeah, yeah yeah that's really unfortunate isn't it it is For sake, pitchfork. but it's also it, it's also kind of hidden on the website like it feels um, uh, and more so recently yeah, yeah. I, but i mean just the announcement like it did feel like that should be on the front page of fact where actually yeah. you need to scroll and i know this isn't your decision obviously but like you need to scroll past the latest yeah. mix to find out I guess because it's still going to continue in some capacity. So it's like... True. Yeah. 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 yeah this is the strange thing about fact is that it's just been so many things and it might continue right. being many things and maybe they're fine with it being much more flexible and malleable. Maybe that's... Maybe there's a small lesson in there for other projects in a way. I mean, of course, once you've sold your your brand to a bigger company, then you don't really have that flexibility. But it would be interesting to see if people could be a bit more flexible, dynamic about the future of... I don't even want to say music journalism. I think we kind of almost mean like music discovery and criticism or yeah. whatever that means because the audience has either grown older or has not come through. Younger people don't really turn to these sites to to look for things. I mean, you know from Tom from working with younger artists that they don't they're not they don't really be checking resident no. advisor for no. news. A so. certain twenty four year old artist called me a psycho recently because he saw me checking our rate on my phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I might be liable to call you a psycho yeah. for yeah. checking yeah. resident advisor. What are you doing? Like, why would you do that? And I was like, it's a part of my daily They're on routine. SoundCloud though, right? Like that this is the thing. There are like yeah. there are yeah. sort of enclaves on pre-existing platforms that have had yeah. phases and discord obviously yeah yeah of course discord but i guess like soundcloud's interesting because you know it's had various like positions within like how music's been made and, and distributed and yeah. discovered and i think now like i think most of my zuma friends discover all their music on soundcloud now. Mm. that's interesting henry if you were in charge of not necessarily fact but a fact like entity and had some budget and you thought I want to get great music into the ears of people who would enjoy it. What do you think you would actually do to achieve that now? Like looking at all of the kind of mediums that you could be across and the ways that you could communicate Are with people. Are you thinking specifically young people? Um, younger, but younger, like, yeah. you know, uh, include me in your bracket, if you will. But like, <laughs> Chow's younger than me. You can include, you can include Chow. I don't know if you can get away. But you know, pe me. people who are still likely to be going out is kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, maybe I'd still continue doing a mix series on SoundCloud. I think I like it as a platform. It feels like suddenly my experiences of working, putting mixes up on there, that that feels like a kind of a, a good place for it. In terms of like trying to get it into the ears of people who I think should listen to it, it's a tricky one. I think basically this is going to get into like a, a topic that's far too big for the podcast, but like just media is changing so much, right? So the idea of anyone thinking that like a, a website is where anyone's going to discover anything in the next five years is sort of, that's already super antiquated. Mm. And I think already we've seen like a huge migration of people out of like the really weird, like convoluted media ecosystem, most of which, most of which takes place within the sphere of social media. I think people who 
probably like the fact mix and people who are going to like smaller nights in London that people take great care to to put on outside of the big like ticket sale venue things. Um, I think those people are probably already on their own personal discords, like you said, and they're trying to make stuff work for themselves within smaller communities. I think for me, I mean, yeah, having as a budget would be great. But I think that, you know, a way in which you can make those communities like talk to each other, I get maybe a bit like the blog era, which is like well before my time. I didn't really even come up reading blogs. I've never written a blog myself. But whether there's this sort of like interaction and like interoperability, I guess, between those kinds of like smaller, younger communities, maybe that's something that I would try and... And that can be around something like a mix series, right? Like putting budget into a mix series... Maybe the thing I'd love to do if we're talking about mixes is having budgets like pay everyone to do a mix and then also pay someone really well to write something really considered and really beautiful to accompany the mix as well. And maybe that kind of an offering that would maybe be behind a paywall or something like a Patreon model, maybe something like that would be something that's significant enough whereby these smaller communities could gravitate around it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like me and Finn did mixtape club two years for sure yeah um what we found tricky about that and i think it is relevant to your point because especially because so much of this stuff is tied in with with financials it's like actually we got a lot of subscribers really quick Mm. and we broke even really quickly and then when we stopped when we started losing money was because we did it in seasons and so it would be a season of six mixes and then it would be six months off and then another season and our we paused people's patrons in that time off, but the numbers still just dropped massively. And it you never need to be really consistent, recovered. Yeah. But I think you're right. Like that kind of showed us that like, you know, if we had done a mix even every month for two years, it probably would have become something that doesn't, you know, bring a load of money in, but like actually could have become something where you could at least be paying every, well, we did pay every DJ, but paying every DJ and potentially paying someone to run it. Mm. It's a small scale example, but I think like yeah. it does. What's happened to it? We just stopped it. Stopped it. Yeah, we decided we kind of made the point we wanted to make. I think. Yeah, but I, I bring it up because I think it does. <laughs> yeah. kind of. Um, but maybe it has to not be about the point. It has to be about the fact that it's like a space. Yeah, for no, which people can can gravitate around. Maybe mm. that's the the key focus. That's uh, a good point. Yeah, I don't know. I thought that was cool. I'd like. I'd like that to be. But you're right. Fun. It wasn't a community based thing. It yes. was a very much like. Um, yeah. This is my slight worry with like. Substack and stuff it feels like and i know people do do it and it feels like it's happening more recently but like substack does always feel like one person shouting into an email inbox super whereas like yeah. the blog thing was like very community-based and everyone linked to each other and there was blog roles i'm really sus of substack partially i think because again like twitter i've never had twitter i've always been scared to have it mm. i've never really been part of that like ecosystem or environment I find Substack similarly scary, but I, from the ones that I see, it does feel very like just smaller and smaller echo chambers. I just don't understand how it, I, I, I want everyone to hear about all this cool stuff. I don't want it to just, yeah. just be like a small like sliver of like newsletters of people who then use it to, I don't know, go on podcasts and get jobs with the like information they've got from it. You know, like I, that's, mm. that doesn't seem like a good model to me. Hey, how can we end on a positive, positive note? note? Henry. <laughs> what are you going to do next with your life, yeah. Henry? I really don't know. As 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 we covered earlier, I've, um, yeah, I stopped working for fact today. So I'm very, very freshly. Probably going to have a Guinness shortly. I unemployed. I'm doing dry January. Oh, oh, that's sad. But okay. at the end of the month, maybe. And um, so am I, but you know, I yeah, it maybe, be a celebratory one. Maybe it would, like a, an optimistic and positive note to end on would be, I would love to ask you both what you think like more like more sustainable future models for this kind of stuff is i both mean like label stuff but then also uh how do you be a music critic in the future and and make it work Mm. i think i think it's positive that people are looking around and just getting back to a kind of diy or die mindset where it's like well if you want good stuff you might need to put in quite a lot of unpaid legwork because you really like it. And that is unfortunate, but I would, I do think there have been times when I've read a, you know, I've, I've gone onto a music website and read through and felt like maybe it wasn't as passionate and freewheeling as some of the kind of 
blog material that I've read years ago, right? And there's something about when there's no expectation to kind of professionalize or be authoritative or definitive that's actually really freeing. And that I think, like, I think that is the best of the the newer stuff, whether that's like a Substack or a TikTok or a podcast, whatever. So yeah, maybe it just comes back to just thinking about something that you yourself personally, or ideally like your you and your friends would want to do and enjoy doing and just do that. And maybe it's a Discord server where you share tunes that you like, and then you put on a small night and a few people come, but that in itself is the best bit. And sometimes I think music 100%. critics are, mm. and music journalists are you know, prone to forget that the best bit is mm. going to listen to music and meeting people and yeah. getting out of your house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe. yeah. And I think that's sort of the spirit I try to bring to both the mix series, but also all the like um, cover features that I wrote for the print magazine as well. Like, Basically, all of them are people that I've been obsessed with since I was a teenager. And the other people I've written about have been to people that I really passionately believe in. And I've really tried to approach all of it with just this feeling of, yeah, trying to make it passionate and weird and freewheeling and to try and remember what it is like to go to trance party and go out, get out of your mind. And like, that's something that's like, I think you can do that like rigorously and generously and within a frame of music criticism, but also have that spirit yeah. in it, I think. Tom, what do you think? I don't have anything smart to add. <laughs> I mean, look, the mixtape era, we say so mixtape era was better than the streaming era when it comes to rap music and maybe there's a parallel there, you know? Mm. I think about that. Rap music's so cool at the moment though. I no, right. It, oh, but, yeah, but <laughs> like, I think I think that is in reaction to like this like yeah. streaming yeah, hegemony yeah. that's going on with bigger artists and like this incredibly boring like streaming focused 100%. top tier of male rap artists. Yeah, SoundCloud um, rap is killer at the moment. Yeah. I don't know. I think there's parallels and I, 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 you know, it's not just rap music, but I think there are parallels between like a lot of the music we reference and like grew up on and still listen to now. It's like, it was better when the business was out the window. Of course. And it was Always more exciting. Is. And I don't know, the more that stuff enters the room, often the more boring it gets. And maybe there's parallels between that and music writing. Yeah. That doesn't help anyone earn a living. <laughs> I'm aware. Yeah. Henry, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you for having me. Serious pleasure. Thank and uh, yeah, I mean, commiserations, but I'm sure yeah, I, I think you're going to go on to do good things. I was I'm, not, I'm not worried about you. But congrats for yeah. like, you know, you. I, yeah. think, I think doing like an absolute grand job of steering that ship. Thank you so much. Seems was, to be pretty much solo. Um, I wanted to it. take the opportunity to, yeah, appeal to the, the music industry at large. I am now officially unemployed. <laughs> so if anyone wants to send some work or some writing my way, I would deeply... Appreciate Where can it. people catch you? I guess on Instagram. You can check find me on Instagram. Yeah. Great. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Henry.